0: Hi everybody, today is October 15th, 2015 and this is Neuroscientist Talk Shop, the University of Texas at San Antonio's Neuroscience Podcast. Today, we have Paul Colessa with us. Paul is the lab director and director of the imaging lab at the Stowers Institute, and also professor of anatomy and cell biology at the University of Kansas Medical Center. Hi, Paul. Yeah, hi. Paul uses live cell imaging and a host of very cool cell and molecular biology methods to study migration and differentiation of neural crest cells as they establish components of the peripheral nervous system and other tissues as well. Paul's work is a combination of stunning microscopic images, most of which are movies, and molecular biology depend on the mechanisms of cell identity and the spatial distribution of cells, and also computational models that explain the dynamics. Uh, around the room, UTSA faculty Gary Gaffel. Hello. Fidel Santamaria. Hello. And Gerard Bowden. Hello. And me, I'm your host today, Charlie Wilson. Uh, Paul, there's a lot to say. I hate to make you start at the beginning, but would you start by reminding us about the neural crest and why it's so great for studying cell migration and cell fate?
1: Right. So I, I love the, the neural crest because they're this really highly invasive population of cells. They're multipotent. They contribute to nearly every organ in the body. And their multipotency is that they're, they could become uh, neuronal, they could become uh, pigment cells, they could become part of connective tissue. So they really have this wide variety of, of potential phenotypes, and yet they are really invasive, but they follow stereotypical pathways in the embryo and don't just have an uncontrolled invasion. So the questions are, how do they know to follow discrete stereotypical migratory pathways, and stay together as a collective group to get from one place to another.
0: And they have a long way to go.
1: They do. And, and uh, you know, they, they exit the dorsal neural tube. They migrate through a microenvironment of loosely connected mesodermal cells and an extracellular matrix. And, for example, in the chick embryo, they have to migrate over 1,000 microns in the period of about 24 hours. So they really have this long-distance migration that would probably be analogous to uh, pronghorn migration in Wyoming or um, a- another species that's traveling from one position to another uh, for food sources and things like that. So.
0: Except the Wyoming landscape isn't getting bigger as the pronghorns are ah. <laughs> trying to make through it. but. It- And then, of course, it is, right?
1: Yeah, the the embryo is certainly growing during this pattern formation process, and it's dynamic, which makes it really exciting because pattern formation doesn't occur at a particular time and over a short time frame. It's really occurring over 24 hours um, in in the avian, and uh, it is a very dynamic pattern. So cells are migrating through different microenvironments as they go, and an analogy to the pronghorn, that's right. The, the microenvironments that the pronghorn are traveling through, the domains are not growing, so they're consistently going 125 miles. But different roads are being constructed. Uh, there's washout of rivers and different uh, uh, climate, uh, climate changes. So they really have to navigate the same microenvironments but under different conditions, perhaps. And, and so that makes their travels exciting. So the cell migration paths... Uh, you showed a m-
0: movie, which I cannot show our audience, but it's this great movie of looking down on the chick uh, embryo and the, the neural crest cells are migrating out in streaks with gaps in between. So there are streams of migration. And the streams don't cross. Uh, I understand it would be bad if the streams crossed. You should not cross this street. Anyway, that, uh, right. what what keeps them from?
1: Yeah, from you, you've actually given me a hint at a good talk title. <laughs> um, that would be Ghostbusters related, but uh, um, yeah, that is that is really distinct because if you take a neural tube out of the embryo and you put it in in a three D culture, the neural crest cells will just invade the entire. Um, Uh, milieu, and they won't form these discrete streams. And um, um, so that's really exciting. There are neural crest cell free zones that form. And so that, that begs the question, what are the potential inhibitory factors that keep neural crest cells from invading everywhere? And what are the promoting factors that keep them along a particular stereotypical migratory pathway over long distances to be persistent and get to a target location. What are they? Well, I think some of the chemoattractants or the factors that are that are driving the directed migration are starting to become known. We know that in the head, vascular endothelial growth factors are playing a major role uh, from our work. From work from others in the trunk, it's clear that the chemokines are playing a role. Um, Then uh, there are different families of the, or different uh, members of the chemokine family, depending on the the neural crest streams and the axial levels, that seem to be playing a role in um, attracting cells uh, from the uh, dorsal neural tube out into the periphery. Um, And so we have a hint that there's directed migration. What we don't have a hint, a very good hint on, are what are the inhibitory signals that keep the neural crest cells confined along the migratory pathway. We do know from some previous work in other laboratories that there are some signals, inhibitory signals, local adjacent to the neural tube that help sculpt neural crest cells onto a particular pathway, but we just don't know what's going on farther away from the influence of the neural tube of what might be inhibiting the cells from traveling anywhere and what may keep them together as a discrete population or moving collectively. So it might be a combination of inhibition um, away from the streams that keep them confined and an attraction locally within the cell population that keeps them together to move as a, as a coordinated group. Do all of these things have to be diffusible, or
0: could they be attached to the tissue that the cells are migrating through?
1: Yeah, I think that's a great question. You know, because the neural crest cells can secrete certain factors. They can alter the extracellular matrix and the local microenvironment. So they, they may be signaling to other cells both directly by contact or physical contact or indirectly by altering the matrix through which they crawl. So they could secrete a factor that might change uh, the properties of the extracellular matrix. Uh, it doesn't necessarily have to be read out by the by the other cells um, directly um, or by by a contact but it could alter that matrix somehow to make it easier um, or more pliable for the for the trailing cells to follow that particular pathway so I think you hit on a really good point is there could be a number of things and we the next step is to start to sort of narrow down what those possibilities might be
2: well. You mentioned that, uh, you know, these neural crest cells migrate a long distance. And along the way, they may have different targets. In fact, they may have different exit points. So when these initial clusters are born, are there um, different birth dates along the way? And um, uh, and does, will that determine where they stop? And the reason why I ask this, because I want to try to understand if there are general principles in um in migration and cell specification let's take for example um, you know the classic uh, uh, layering of the cerebral cortex you have uh, early newborn cells um, they're established at a particular layer a deep layer of the cortex and subsequently there are cells that are born later that will pass that so do you have um, examples or does that occur with respect to neural crest development where you have an initial migration, and then later born cells will pass the earlier born cells to become a particular cell type. Right.
1: I think, I think there's two answers to that. In the head, um, as you know, cranial neural crest cells follow a dorsolateral migratory pathway. It's really one single pathway, but not every cell that exits the neural tube has to reach the peripheral target. Um, as you know, some of those cells that are later emerging actually will populate some of the the uh, ganglia, and together with placodal driven uh, placodal cells that arise, will contribute to a structure that's more proximal, uh, or sorry, more uh, proximal to the neural tube, rather than the cells that migrate the long distances to to get into the peripheral targets such as the branchial arches or other parts of the face. So. That, that I think, is an important aspect, is that not everyone has to reach the target. And so what might be and what we think is going on is that the cells that are going to go most proximal, the most invasive cells, might have a completely different way that they're responding to those microenvironmental signals. And then other microenvironmental signals may turn on to attract those later emerging cells and cause them to stop at that location because they need to form... A distinct structure there, rather than at the target site. Now, in the in the trunk, it's a little bit different of a story in getting being related to the plasticity of the cell and its um, its potential phenotype. There, you have three migratory pathways that are distinct. The first neural crest cells that emerge, as you know, go to the sympathetic ganglia on a very ventral migratory pathway, whereas the later emerging cells. Um, will take a dorsolateral pathway and are more of the, the pigment cell, cells. So the question becomes, are those cells predetermined as to what their fate is in the neural tube, or do they do they come out and then via, via um, microenvironmental signals, they remain, you know, multipotent or plastic, and then are really determined along the route and at the target site? And I think that's been a long-standing question in the neural, neural crest field, but more recently um, some labs have shown that there is a plasticity there, that things are not predetermined. Um, there's a multipotency that the, to the neural crest cells that during their migration they can become um, different fates. And uh, um, we've certainly shown in the um, dorsal neural tube in the trunk that there um, is an order to the emergence, but then neural crest cells can come to the very dorsal part of the exit location and stay there, while others that are more ventral in the neural tube can migrate past them and exit. That's suggesting that... That there isn't a, a predetermined fate, but it's more stochastic of an exit once the cells get there, and then they're along the migratory pathways, and then becoming, uh, depending on that migratory pathway that they select, becoming
3: a particular fate like a sympathetic neuron or a, a sensory neuron. So I, I have, I mean, since like the first talk I, I, I saw on developmental biology when I was a grad student, uh, was like what is the contribution of the mechanics of the tissue and what is the con- I I I know we cannot put a number but I would like to get a sense of since the embryo is growing right is just increasing the volume on which these cells can just move is does that have what what do you think is the effect of that and how much does it does it contribute it seems to me that there's this uh, complete focus on biochemistry uh, that is all chemical signaling, which is fine, but, but the thing is real, right? And there are tension forces and so on. And, so. and pr- there's pressure. Um, I mean, we, we don't under, we, uh, like in neurons, we tend to believe that our brain slices are fine when we put them in the microscope. And, uh, uh, and inside the brain, they're under pressure. But anyway, that's a different story. But um, I don't know what you, what you think about mechanics and stuff. I, I'm thinking about organoids also, uh, how is that get, uh, uh, form and stuff. Like that. Yeah, no, I think you hit on a
1: great question. And that's really some uh, part of the direction of uh, where our research is going to go, primarily because we have seen that some of the genes that are very highly expressed by the most invasive cranial neural crest cells. Um, have a hint that they're uh, related to altering the the microenvironment that they're traveling through. So, for example, one of the highest expressed genes that we saw was aquaporin-1. And aquaporin-1 is regulating the water channels within the cell. So why is that important for an invasive neural crest cell? Well... um, uh, about 15 years ago it was shown that aquaporins can form a stable complex with ephephrine mm-hmm. signals. So it could be that that the neural crest cell is reading out some direction it wants to move in that direction but the matrix is dense or complicated and that cell can't squeeze through a portion of that matrix. So what does it have to do? It has to change its morphology and so the uh, the the you know, interpretation of high expression of aquaporin-1 could be that the cell is opening up a water channel locally within the cell membrane to change the morphology locally of the cell such that it can extend a protrusion very narrowly into that space and then respond to a chemical signal um, and move forward um, in that sort of manner. So we're very excited about the, the mechanics of both the, the neural crest cell and cell and the mechanics of the underlying extracellular matrix and the mesoderm. The the other example is that I've been talking with some biomedical engineers and who have been telling me that not only is extracellular matrix density important because if you have a particular uh, range of densities, it's more or less um, um, positive for neural crest cells to be invasive or other cell types but the alignment of the fibers is critical. Mm -hmm. So it could be that you have a dense matrix, but the alignment of the fibers is really critical to that. And so you can imagine that the neural crest cells are potentially following or reaching out and grabbing parts of the extracellular matrix. If there's some tension that they exert on that, that tension in the matrix could be preserved such that a, a cell directly in back of that doesn't have to read out a chemical signal, but can read out the tension in the matrix and oh, follow yeah, that right. by right. a taxis mechanism right. rather right. than right. that. Right. So I think uh, you know the, the problem is that visualizing the extracellular matrix and these really thin fibers is really challenging. Mm-hmm. But uh, maybe we can do this in collaboration with uh, biomedical engineers who are experts at being able to create these aligned, you know, um, ECM matrices right. and then tweak them at small increments to see what would be the optimum um, um, sort of alignment properties of
3: that. That's what's happening more or less for growing cartilage. Right? I mean, like yeah. um, these microstructures, <laughs> three-dimensional structures, they're trying to fine-tune the, the mesh shape and the diameter of these artificial things to then grow mm-hmm. have the cells migrate properly. And then, and then grow. And, you know, with that
2: idea, you would imagine that uh, different areas of the developing embryo will have distinct patterns of matrices, and those patterns will maybe directly related to what the neural crest. Yeah, will abs- become. absolutely. So, one cell fate by just changing the order or network of the matrix, you can essentially. What you're saying is cause a non-cell autonomous um, specification of that particular cell.
1: Yeah, um, and, and or a motility type. So a number of years ago, what we, what we did was um, there are regions uh, along the axis where neural crest cells are more apt to form discrete streams, and some areas where it's thinner where they form these single-file chains. And so what we did was we transplanted pre-migratory neural crest cells from one axial level that normally formed streams into an area that formed chains and asked, does it depend on where these cells came from? When we moved the cells more caudally into a location where they normally form chains, the cells that form streams ended up forming chains and vice versa, suggesting that the microenvironment was dictating the motility type. And we don't know... We haven't gone back and asked whether the tissue density was different in the microenvironment in one region versus another, but you can imagine that um, uh, we we did simulate this uh, with a computational model that suggested that the thicker the matrix that the cells were crawling through, they were more apt to form chains, suggesting that, or based on the idea that cells will degrade the matrix, and if it's very dense, they're more apt to follow a cell that's already degraded something, rather than go off on their own and degrade yeah. you know, that matrix.
0: We're used to seeing these images of a few fluorescent neurons in a black background. You get the impression that cells are migrating
1: by swimming from one right, place, right. There,
0: but they're really tunneling from one place to another. Mm-hmm. They're having mm-hmm. to dig their way through this stuff.
1: Well, swimming is an interesting concept as well, too, because of these aquaporins and <clears throat> i was recently at a cell mechanics workshop where i brought together both theoreticians and experimentalists and i mentioned that aquaporin 1 was highly expressed and someone said ah but we've been modeling swimming amoeba amoeba and they don't tend to swim but they can and they do that we think by opening up you know sort of pores at the leading edge and then you know, closing them and opening them up at oh. the trailing edge, and then you know, propelling themselves. So we've been modeling that, <laughs> and then, another yeah, oh, and then oh, another, yeah, and then another, yeah. <laughs> and an, an, one of the biomedical engineers stood up and said, "Ah, but we've we've actually done this experiment with neutrophils and put them in a confined microfluidic and shown that they can open up water channels at the leading edge of the of the neutrophil and and just change the pressure locally." and then open it up in the back and then propel themselves forward. Hmm. So uh, so I think that could be really cool. If you could correlate that with them reading out a chemical signal, you can imagine that they would read out the chemical signal uh, gradient and then want to move in that direction and then alter the, uh, the uh, water channel locally, which might also alter the local pH of the cell. And altering the local pH has been tied to directional migra- migration uh, in germ cells recently. So it, it could be—it could very well be that there's there's this really cool. Uh, An elaborate cell mechanics alongside of chemotaxis but, that, that we really need to drill down yeah. on now and get But this point.
3: Uh, my question there, I mean, or what fascinates me, is like, well, I'm talking about chickens. What is the chicken or the egg here? Which is ironic yeah.
0: because it's mean, uh-huh.
3: kind of <laughs> like, <yeah>. chicken eggs. <laughs> exactly. Um, I thought about it <laughs> three hours ago. Uh, um, but, um so, what triggers what, right? I mean, is, is it like the chemical signal triggers the, the mechanics, the motility, or is it the change, like a, an external force that is just like it's happening, it grows, it's just allowing these things to be more motile, and then they trigger, the, 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 the it's like penguins rushing into the, uh, into the water after they migrate. There's nothing special between the penguin that's in front to the penguin that is in the, in, in the middle of the pack. Um, of the flock, but it just turned out that by chance they ended up in front. And then this phenomenon of rushing, right, it, it um, exists. I mean, they they the one rushes and then the flock fall, they jump into the ocean, right. So it's just because at that moment they were able to do it. I mean, they reach the ocean and then one has to like get in. Uh, so. The mechanics could just expand a little bit the volume, and then that allows about chemical reactions to trigger uh, instead of the opposite. But right? you know, could be I think
0: in the, even in the penguin situation, the animals are staying close to each other. Uh-huh. So there's something that causes them to stay close to each other and not just diffuse out from each other. So that's these. Kinds so that, that would be of the, the signal. That would be the analogy. Yeah, our signals. I don't know what signals the penguin's using. I don't know what signal the signals the using.
3: Probably it's very cold, but stand by yourself. Yeah, it's <laughs> such a rush. Yeah. Well, is, do you think there's a leader penguin? <laughs> <laughs> or a uh, polar penguin? Right, 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 exactly. I
1: mean, just uh, that. Uh-huh. that analogy. Yeah, no, I, I think in a lot of animal model systems, and just my casual observations of uh, uh, um, geese uh, mm-hmm. swimming around on a pond or um, elephants, um, you know, in train to a watering hole, and some other observations of animal model systems, and certainly other people that are uh, work on this have identified specific characteristics of uh, um, of animal migrations. I really think that there probably are uh, leaders that um, have some sense or are reading out particular guidance cues, um, and then passing that information on to uh, trailing cells or trailing uh, other animals. But I think Cadell brings up a good point, is it may vary. You know, if there is a clear gradient in the microenvironment that leaders can read out, um, I think that they will follow that gradient. But let's say that uh, the chemical signal is more ubiquitously expressed so that there's not a clear gradient, that the cells themselves have to create the gradient, and so then you can imagine that uh, the lead cells are uh, invasive. Their, their role might be to break down the matrix um, and break down the density of the, of the uh, extracellular matrix and tissue, and then the, the cells di- directly behind them are really the ones that are advancing forward and reading out a directional cue and maybe pushing the, those most invasive cells as well, too. So it, it may be dependent on local microenvironmental properties as to what motility type is, is going on here and what comes first. But, um, you know, that's a good question. Do you read out the gradient first and then create a protrusion? Or do you have a natural protrusive activity in a chemokinesis, and then all of a sudden you stumble on a chemical gradient? And I think that that is uh, is very dependent on the microenvironment.
0: So your videos show, though, this very choreographed, Dance of the cells, or two different kinds of cells interact with each other, and they change each other. And um, they're—it isn't just like uh, molecules diffusing in a medium. It's a lot more complicated than that. And there's a bunch of different things that have to happen. Cells have to join a group, and then they have to migrate along a stream, and they will clump together at some point to form a nucleus or a ganglion or something like that, and then axons. Grow well, out of them and they connect with other neurons and other neurons migrate because of that and and so like sort of simple views of it based on just the mechanics of the tissue and by itself or just diffusible gradients by themselves it doesn't seem to have a chance of explaining the whole thing so what's our um, what's our hope what's our great hope for explaining the whole thing so one of the things that impressed me is that you put together the stuff you know into a computational model and then ask whether that model is enough or is not enough to explain the, the phenomenon. Is that a, a good way for us to tell when we're there?
1: Well, I think the big difference in the last 5 to 10 years has been multi-scale data collection. So we can watch the cell behaviors and visualize them in vivo, um, in this case the neural crest, We can then um, measure and quantitate their physical interactions with each other. And as you were saying, you know, how are they moving as a coordinated group or collectively? We can measure their speeds, their their direction, and the physical properties. What has made a big difference is being able to stop the time lapse and determine what um, genes are being expressed in as few as a single cell now. and where its position is at in terms of the microenvironment and along the migratory pathway to the target at different developmental stages, or uh, its position within the stream, whether it be the most invasive of the population or directly behind that or really in the trailing population. So I think um, multi-level data collection is is really um, allowing us to link cell behaviors and uh, molecular signals. And that's going to be a game changer in terms of us being able to put together um, how multiple signals are being integrated by the cells and then what's the mechanical properties that actually... um, uh, propagate the protrusive activity in the cell motions.
0: So, so one of the things that's new that's helped this to blossom right now is the ability to find all those molecules, identify them, at least to identify candidate molecules uh, by gene expression assays and uh, other things. You can tell me what they all are, and uh, and one usually ends up with a pretty long, intimidatingly long list of of molecules that are. Good candidates, and likely that when we have the list of the ones that are really doing that, that's going to be a pretty long list, too. How how long? Do you know? (laughs) Is it going to be uh, tens or hundreds or thousands of different molecules?
1: Yeah, that's a great question, and I think we need to start small. So if if we would have started with an RNA seq approach, we would have, you know, come up with ten thousand maybe more genes um, that uh, that were typical of being expressed by migratory neural crest cells in the head. Um, we, so we took that approach. Initially, we had a microarray analysis, and we did it for about 10,000 genes. We found that about 150 of those genes were very highly expressed within the lead 30% of the migrating neural crest cells. And the question then is, you know, how do you test the function of 150 genes? And that's still a a huge question. When we started to do qPCR analysis on that lead population and really break it down, uh, we learned that there were about 16 genes that were very highly expressed by just the cells narrowly confined to the migratory front. And we're in the process now of trying to test the function of just those 16 genes. And although it may not um, um, give us the whole picture, it's not such a daunting task that it's going to take 30 years to test the function of those. So I think starting small initially is better, Um, and then trying to test function, but not testing the function of a single gene and a single readout, but developing uh, fluorescent tools to do a combinatorial approach to some of these functional knockdowns. And um, after we map some of the uh, signaling pathways that these genes are on, see if there's commonalities there so we need we need better uh, computational tools for, uh, from the from the computational biology folks to link some of these uh, um, products that we're getting from RNA-seq approaches and QPCr to the right signaling pathways and then better fluorescence tools to be able to um, multiplex um, our analysis of this so if we look if we use uh, uh, three or four different multi um, multicolor reporters uh, to do uh, multispectral imaging. maybe we
3: can test three or four of these genes simultaneously. but wouldn't there be like a um, I don't know enough about this, but uh, if you do the RNA sync, mm-hmm. there's a time lag right? because you can you're looking at mRNAs, right right And, and because you're looking at development, uh, you could you could hypothesize that well this is just they're preparing for the next phase, right? Uh, and maybe there's like an overlap between the, the, the proteins that are actually being used at this point with the proteins that, are, that will be needed in the future. Um, do, is yeah, there a way absolutely. to like uh, distinguish
1: this? Well, yeah, we, we really like to take these 16 genes that we are calling the trailblazer signature mm-hmm. and make uh, tissue-specific reporters for, oh, okay. for yeah, then. And then that would be great. Mm-hmm. Uh, the problem is For us to make tissue-specific reporters for even one gene takes several months, Mm -hmm. and for 16 would take a really long time. Mm -hmm. So, But you're absolutely right. It could be that uh, our detection of a particular gene expression profile within a cell at this developmental stage may change uh, pretty dramatically um, if we looked at that cell um, two hours later, downstream along the migratory routes. So, what
3: would be disruptive technologically would be to have like this automated uh, in situ hybridization or some some kind of reporting the, the, the actual proteins and then link that with your with your RNA seq.
1: Yeah, there's multiplex
3: methods yeah. now um, where you can at least look at five different genes
1: simultaneously, look at the, the mRNA expression. Um, but it would be really great to extend that, and I've, I've heard some rumors that folks are trying to extend that to at least 100 genes simultaneously, mm-hmm. and then that would be really cool, mm-hmm. because that would get further at Charlie's question of, you know, what's the minimum number of players here that, we really, that are really critical to the invasive ability of uh, the neural crest cells, mm-hmm. or invasive embryonic cells in general? And so if we can have reporters that can look at 100 genes simultaneously and give us different expression levels. It may not always be that the highest expressed genes are the most important. Um, it might be that there's other thing, other
4: players there. So if I remember the list correctly, the one thing I thought I did not see on the list was any secreted factors. Because that would be one way for the Trailblazer to tell you know the followers where to go, would be to secrete a factor that continues to attract them in the way that they're going. Ah, you didn't see that in the Trailblazer signature, but it is
1: in the lead signature for the front 30% of the oh, cells is. the migratory front okay. and uh, one of those genes that we're following up on is a secreted factor and interestingly it uh, its receptor um, is not expressed by the trailing population hmm. but it does alter the properties of the extracellular matrix so it could be an indirect way yeah. that the lead cells are manipulating the matrix by a secreted factor and this secreted Particular secreted factor will help present integrins okay. to then those trailing cells, and they might be able to follow that route better. Um,
4: so that could be that could be cool. And you did. I think uh, this also gets back to, a little bit to Fidel's question. There are integrins expressed by that front portion, which are known to change ECM into force and mm. in, in that biochemically do that and and change the ECM. Has there been any? any Uh, Development in trying to actually visualize the ECM before and after the cells go through there?
1: Well, that's a a great question. There's been some um, um, work on using second harmonic generation to try to see some of the uh, ECM, but the fibers appear to be too small at this time to really use those types of techniques. So um, I really like this one saying that if you can't see something, it's not that it's not important or not there. Mm-hmm. Um, and the more that we sort of light up the microenvironment, I think we're going to find some really interesting things. So um, it could very well be that, uh, that we find some other tools to visualize uh, the, the fiber alignment and the fiber orientation
2: mm-hmm. there that would be really neat. Well, I have a question, and, and I'm not going to leave the room until this is a question I've had for a long time. So you love your uh, animal analogy with migration. So I was on a, a trip to, to Mexico once to watch the migrating whales, right? And I realized these guys are migrating uh, to get birth to babies, but they're also going to a warmer climate, okay? So cells are very dynamic, different activities. They're producing different levels of ATP or activity. So if you look at individual cells, they may have um, differences in uh, like microtemperature, Right, so has, is there a case or organisms where there, were thermal regulation or thermal gradient may be involved in uh, cell migration or movement? So, for example, you have uh, various clusters of cells that have different activities. Right? Can they, um, in addition to the chemical gradients, but can they also be generating some kind of Thermal gradient through which yeah. cells will follow.
4: Well, it's, it's funny you're asking a chick guy because isn't that really critical when you grow chicks in the lab? You have to keep the, the eggs moving to keep and like to keep the heat.
2: Uh, well, you have to rotate the you eggs. You have to
4: rotate the eggs. Huh? And in fact, that's what hens do. They don't just sit there. They should keep moving. Well, man, those room. are big gradients, here, like yeah, the, yeah, but yeah, but, but it would change, it would yeah. change yeah. the heat,
2: right? Yeah. So, yeah,
0: well,
2: because our temperature is 37. But I'm sure, mm-hmm. like when I'm flexing my muscle that, that temperature those those are very different from the smooth muscle cells in my, my stomach yeah I haven't thought about that but it's a really interesting concept because you
1: know are the cells themselves um, um, changing temperature because you know they might be moving into an area where there's fewer of them and and where they are closer to one another you might have a higher temperature where they and they might be moving a, down a temperature gradient and um, and I haven't I hadn't thought about how the cells themselves might be altering the local temperatures. But it's an interesting it's an interesting thought. In they form a ganglion. Maybe they're just clumping up
0: to keep warm. <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah. But in the yeah. there are, there are plankton blooms that certainly form, and they they um, move from one position one depth uh, uh, to another and become more shallow depending on the temperature of the uh, seawater. So and then at, and the evenings when the seawater cools down locally, then they return. Uh, to deeper deeper water, so that's that's a case where the microenvironment itself is being uh, is is the temperature is being regulated. I don't know. I don't think we've ever measured, which might be kind of cool to see if as um, you know, be, and it might be related to you know the vascular system as well too. That um, are the periphery you know somehow a little bit cooler than the neural tube and the dorsal exit point of these neural crest cells and. Um, is it is it heat related that they want to go from hot to cold, and that is that is helping promote their migration? I don't know. We hadn't thought about that, but it's an interesting it's an yeah. interesting idea. Speaking of seawater,
0: um, surfing in the summer. Mm-hmm. How, how far along are you
1: at finding <laughs>
0: all that spots?
1: Finding all the spots is really. Challenging. I've just sort of uh, used the guide of that movie from the 1960s to go back to some of those locations. So somebody made a guide of every place? Yeah, Bruce there. Brown is a famous surf photographer. He he is the author of that movie, Endless Summer. Mm-hmm. And um, I've followed in some of the footsteps of Bruce Brown and his colleagues and um, gone to locations uh, in South Africa or Fiji, um, and that's been oh. quite exciting. So <laughs> and, <laughs> they're uh,
0: not just... Uh, ordinary surf
1: locations—they're all over the world. They're all over the world, yeah. And how many
0: of them are there
1: altogether? Um, probably more than the signals that the cell is interpreting in oh the microenvironment. <laughs> so uh, um, it really was an endless number. Yeah, and now now the thing to do is go off the grid and find a new location. And and um, I've seen um, um, some documentaries where uh, folks will will go out and uh, surf a particular. Um, wave from a storm uh that's come out of new zealand and they will follow the track of that entire um, wave set as it moves from south to north so they may um, get on an airplane um, and fly to uh, tahiti uh, surf the swell there get jump back on the airplane fly to hawaii catch it when it moves through hawaii and then get to California, go north to uh, Washington State, and then all the way up to Alaska to catch the tail end of the swell, of the same swell that started from the solar mountain in New Zealand. So There's quite a temperature gradient. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
0: So, okay, thank you very much, Paul Good. Palesa. And also thank you to our local uh, contributors, Gary Galfal, Fidel Santamaria, Good. and Gerard Good. Bowden. This Good. has been Neuroscientist Talk Show. Thank you. Thank you.